The following sermon, entitled Our Only Comfort, was preached on the morning of July 11, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to the book of Isaiah. We read especially Isaiah 12, but to get some context, we will read a part of Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, note verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And now let's go down to verse 10, which continues that thought. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shod. And there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, Thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise Thee. Though Thou wast angry with me, Thine anger is turned away, and Thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is my, He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw waters out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord. Call upon His name. Declare His doings among the people. Make mention that His name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for He hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. We end our Scripture reading at that point. It's on the basis of Isaiah 12 and many other passages of Scripture that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 1. This is found in the back of our songbooks immediately after the songs on page 3. Lord's Day 1, what is thy only comfort in life and death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, belong unto my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, 
who with His precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by His Holy Spirit He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou enjoying this comfort mayest live and die happily? Three. The first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. It is the practice of our congregation and our denomination to preach regularly through the Heidelberg Catechism again and again. This is, in fact, our official practice because our church order in Article 68 mandates this very thing. Article 68 of the church order reads, quote, the minister shall on Sunday explain briefly the sum of Christian doctrine comprehended in the Heidelberg Catechism so that as much as as possible, the explanation shall be annually completed according to the divisions of the catechism itself for that purpose. This article is saying ministers are required to preach through the catechism again and again. And in fact, we are even held accountable to this. For when the church visitors come to our congregation to ensure that everything is being done decently and in good order, the second question they have to ask of the council is this, quote, is the Heidelberg Catechism regularly explained in the services uh, for divine worship so that no doctrine is left untreated? End quote. The expectation is that we are faithful in this regard. And it's in light of that that though we just ended preaching through the Heidelberg Catechism not that long ago, we once again begin again at Lord's Day 1. And now it's important that we recognize we have this practice for good reason. We have this practice because it helps ensure that the whole of God's counsel is regularly explained to the whole of the congregation. That is indeed the calling of every minister. A minister who desires to be faithful in his charge to Jesus Christ must be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, verse 27, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. That is, the minister is not allowed simply to focus on the truths he's most interested in while neglecting other important truths. He's not allowed to pass over certain points of doctrine and only ever focus on his hobby horses, but he must proclaim the whole of God's Word. All the different truths and doctrines that are set forth in it. And the Heidelberg Catechism is a tool that helps ensure that that happens. Because the Catechism is itself a faithful summary of the whole of God's Word. That's the reason the church order and the question of the church visitors can be worded the way that they are. 
the church order speaks of the catechism this way that ministers are to explain briefly the sum of Christian doctrine comprehended in the Heidelberg Catechism. The question of the church visitors ends this way so that no doctrine is left untreated. And the, those two quotes read that way because the catechism is indeed a summary of the whole of God's Word. It's setting forth all the main doctrines because it summarizes the law of God when it treats the Ten Commandments. It summarizes the Gospel of Jesus Christ when it treats the Apostles' Creed. It summarizes divine invocation, prayer to God when it treats the Lord's Prayer. And it summarizes the Christian ministry and the institution of it when it treats the means of grace as well as the keys to the kingdom. And so it's with all of that in mind that we begin again this morning at Lord's Day 1. Because as a congregation, we are interested in being grounded in the fundamental truths of God's Word. We're committed to having a thorough grasp of the whole counsel of our God. And for that reason, we delve again into the Heidelberg Catechism beginning at Lord's Day 1, which focuses on our comfort. Theme for this morning's sermon is Our Only Comfort. This morning we'll look first at the substance of our comfort. Second, the enjoyment of our comfort. And third, the fruit of our comfort. Our only comfort. The substance of it, the enjoyment of it, and finally, the fruit of our comfort. The introduction largely had to do with Heidelberg Catechism preaching. Now we get more into the substance of this Lord's Day. And the Heidelberg Catechism begins... By asking about comfort, question one, what is thy only comfort in life and death? And the catechism begins that way because it's the design of the catechism, according to one of the authors of it, that, quote, we may be led to the attainment of a sure and solid comfort both in life and death, end quote. And that, therefore, is the theme of the entire catechism. Again and again, the catechism takes us back to the, the value, the profit, the benefit, that is, the comfort of the various truths that it unfolds. But now that raises the question, what is comfort? Comfort is the resultant condition of the believer's heart, mind, soul, and strength who is able to place in a balance, weigh in a balance, all of the evils that he or she will face over against some good. And is able to conclude that that good so far outweighs all of those evils we must face that I'm therefore able to endure patiently those evils. That is, comfort is that result of having something so dear and precious, so valuable and wonderful, that it mitigates all the, the pain and the sorrow of those hardships. And, in, and it, in fact, sustains our hearts in the midst of those things. That's the idea of comfort when the Catechism speaks of our only comfort. And I trust we all recognize we need 
such comfort. We need it exactly because there are so many evils that we face in this life. There are the evils of the different trials and afflictions that come upon us. Some of which are physical in nature so that different members of the congregation have different ailments, different diseases, whether it's cancer, whether it's chronic back pain, whether it's a a heart problem. These weigh heavily on us. But there are many other trials and afflictions of a, a different character that are not physical, at least primarily in nature. There's the trials of broken and damaged relationships. Whether between a husband and a wife. Whether between parents and children. Whether between grandparents and grandchildren. Whether between friend to friend. There are the hardships of being sinned against. Of being the objects of hateful and therefore hurtful words. And when we encounter such trials and afflictions, they come as a great burden to us. And on account of that burden being placed upon our shoulders, we sometimes feel as though I'm about to buckle. We wish we could just throw in the towel and be done with it. Cast that burden off our shoulders somehow, but it will not go away. And therefore, we need comfort. We need comfort also on account of our spiritual enemies. We need comfort on account of the the wicked world that's ever growing in its wickedness, ever growing in its hostility to Christianity. So that it's as though there's storm clouds on the horizon. We start to wonder, are these days of relative peace for the church in this land soon to end as persecution about to break out upon the church? And then, there are, and then there are the attacks of the devil who never ceases to assail us. Who with his demons is always trying to draw us away from our God. And as we battle against these enemies, we grow weary. As we anticipate what is to come in the future, we become frightened. We become afraid. And thus, it's in light of our enemies that we need comfort. And we need comfort also because of that last enemy. Namely, death. For we all recognize that it's appointed to every man that he must die. Whether that death comes due to old age, whether it become, comes due to some accident, if you will, or due to violence or some disease, death is inescapable. And that prospect of death can be altogether terrifying. And it's in light of that that we also need comfort. But we need comfort first and foremost on account of our sin and our sinfulness. Because whether one is willing to admit it or not, we are all descendants of Adam. And therefore, every one of us received a corrupt nature. All of us were born guilty on account of our sin. And that sin brings misery. 
Because that sin brings with it a sense of shame and guilt. That sin brings devastating consequences. Really, everything that we described as the reason we need comfort is all the effects, all the result of sin, either directly or indirectly. And that's it's on account of our sin that we need comfort. And really, because we're talking about the greatest possible evil, sin, that means if we're going to have some good that outweighs it, it must be the highest possible good. The good news of the Gospel and the reassuring message of Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism is we have that highest possible good. We have that one thing that so far outweighs all the evils that we can then patiently endure them. We have that one thing that will sustain our hearts in the midst of the trials that we face. Namely, we have salvation in Jesus Christ so that we belong to Him. That's the familiar language of question and answer one. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the substance, the the content of our comfort. That's also the teaching of the passage of Scripture that we read this morning. Isaiah 12 likewise speaks of our comfort, or at least of God comforting us. Isaiah 12, verse 1, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise Thee, though Thou wast angry with me, Thine anger is turned away, and Thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. We have in this passage of Scripture a passage that really echoes the the message of the Heidelberg Catechism. Really, the Catechism is echoing the truths that are set forth here. Because this passage likewise links our comfort to the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ, to the fact that we have salvation in Him. For Isaiah 12 is indeed a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. And that becomes evident from the opening line, and in that day thou shalt say, what day? In the day of Jesus' coming. Because Isaiah 12 comes in the middle at the tail end of a section that's filled with all sorts of messianic prophecies. Prophecies pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. And that day points us back to the preceding context where we read about the coming of our Savior. We read about that in Isaiah 11, verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 12 comes in the context of Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is in the context of Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. It's in the day of Christ's coming that the church receives her comfort. This passage is linking those two things together. 
And that comfort comes in knowing, first of all, who He is. Because His identity does indeed come out here as our Savior. It's evident from verse 2 of the passage. We read in verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. States that explicitly. It's really quite remarkable to read that here in this context. Because though the context here in the book that we just showed is filled with messianic prophecies, the broader context is that this is a message of judgment. God has been declaring that He's about to judge Judah for their sin. And thus for the remnant in Israel to hear this word that God is their salvation is quite striking. No doubt they would have expected to read instead, God is our judge. God is our avenger. But instead, the message is, God is my salvation. That is, He is the author of it. He's the source of it. He's the cause of it. He's the agent of it. He's the accomplisher of our salvation. And as those who live in the New Testament, we recognize that He is all that in and through Jesus Christ. For the very name Jesus means Jehovah salvation. The name Jesus is echoing the very thing we read in Isaiah 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. And that Christ is the One who came into this world to accomplish our salvation by His saving work, His lifelong obedience, and His death at Calvary. And it's in that truth. It's in the identity of our Savior as Jehovah's salvation that we have comfort. We also have comfort in His saving work. In His atoning death. That too comes out in the passage. Really, it's demanded by the language of verse 1. Verse 1 reads, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise Thee. Though thou wast angry with Me, Thine anger is turned away. And I say that language demands the atoning work of Jesus Christ because our God is an unchanging God. If He is angry with someone, that anger does not just dissipate over time. It does not just fade for no reason. But instead, that anger, that wrath, had to be poured out. God's justice demands it. So for us to read, Thou wast angry with Me, but Thy anger is turned away, points us unmistakably to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Points us to the fact that God's anger when it was turned from us was turned to Him. And that all of our sins were placed upon Him. And God poured out His wrath, His fury upon His beloved Son. That's the reason. That's the basis for this blessed prophecy that we read in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1, that God was angry with us, but His anger is turned away. It's only true because of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And again, the passage is linking that to our comfort because it goes on to say in the very next phrase, and thou comfortest me. So it's in light of Isaiah 12 that we recognize that the highest possible good is that we belong to Jesus Christ. 
that great good that far outweighs all the evils is that we have salvation in Him. And this truth does indeed answer every one of those evils. As we said, we face many evils. We face the evil of sin. The guilt, the shame, the misery that comes with it. But there's an answer. And the answer is that Jesus Christ has delivered me from my sin with His precious blood that He shed at Calvary. So that though by nature, yes, I was a child of wrath. I was the enemy of God. I've now been reconciled to the Father. I now have peace with Him. There's an answer to our sin. There's an answer to the prospect of death. Yes, I must face death one day, but Christ has conquered death. He's overcome the grave. And therefore, when I must face death, that death is really the means whereby I enter into eternal glory, whereby I'm brought closer to my Savior. There's an answer to death. And so too, there's an answer to the fact that we must face those spiritual enemies. For as the Catechism teaches us, Christ has delivered us from the power of the devil. He's broken the reign of sin in our hearts and in our lives. And yes, we must still battle against sin, but He gives us grace sufficient to fight, to stand in the day of temptation. And what is more, He will one day finally and fully deliver me from my spiritual enemies. There's an answer to that. And so too, there's an answer for all of those trials and afflictions we must face. And again, the answer is found in Christ. He's the one who controls those afflictions who sovereign over them so that not even a hair can fall from our heads apart from the will of our God. And what is more, Jesus Christ uses even the evils that do come upon us, the trials that do afflict us for our good. That is, He makes them subservient to our salvation so that the, this highest good not only far outweighs all the evils, but in fact, this highest good, the fact that I belong to Jesus Christ, takes all of these evils and turns them for my advantage, turns them for my profit. So that we see it's the truth of belonging to Jesus. It's the fact that God is my salvation. That I can have comfort. But now that raises a question. Is this in fact where you find your comfort? That is, is this where you look when you face all of those evils? It's a fair question because, well, no doubt everyone here would confess with their mouths my only comfort in life and death is that I belong to Jesus Christ. The reality is that there is sometimes a gap between what comes out of our mouths or what's in our head and what's in our hearts. Because at times, what's in our hearts is that 
we lose sight of this source of comfort, this greatest possible good. And instead, we become so focused, fixated on the evils that in our hearts and minds, the evils begin to outweigh this highest good so that the evils are now bigger in my heart and life than this good that I have in belonging to Jesus Christ. So that I lose that sense of comfort. And what often goes hand in hand with this is the fact that we begin to look elsewhere for comfort. We turn to other things, other supposed sources of comfort. For example, we might look to the things of this life. To money, possessions, as though making a purchase on Amazon is somehow going to make me feel better. As though having lots of money is going to make all the pain go away. Sometimes we turn to entertainment so that we dull the pain by watching YouTube video after YouTube video. We, we seek to ignore all the evil by becoming engrossed in some TV show. Or we seek comfort and consolation from the, the lyrics of some ungodly song. For others, we seek comfort in alcohol or in drugs. Thinking that I could just, if I could just dull the pain enough, then, then I'll be okay. Forgetting that the moment we become somber, that pain's still going to be there. And perhaps worst of all, there's the temptation to try to find comfort in sin itself and the pleasures of sin. Is that not part of the explanation for the multi-billion dollar industry of pornography? Men go there for pleasure. Women go there for pleasure. But a part of the reason is because they do not want to deal with all the hardships and afflictions. They want to get lost in some fantasy realm instead. But beloved congregation, none of those things can give you any comfort. Insofar as we turn to those other things, really all we're trying to do is run away, escape the evils that are a part of our lives. Those things represent our attempts to flee as a bird to our mountain far away. But it will not work. Because not one of those things outweighs the evil. Not one of those things can sustain your heart. To turn to those things is like trying to put a, a band-aid on a gaping flesh wound. It's pointless. It's foolish. And therefore, congregation, do not seek your comfort in any of those things. Really, do not seek your comfort in anything or anyone else other than Jesus Christ. And the fact that you belong to Him because there is only one genuine, firm, lasting, true comfort. The truth that God is my salvation in Jesus Christ. The fact that I belong to Him. 
And our problem is that all too often this is the last thing we think about when we face these evils rather than letting it be the first thing that we think about. The problem is not that there's no source of comfort. The problem is not that there's nowhere we can go to find comfort. But the problem is that we, we fail to go there. We refuse to go to our Savior Jesus Christ. And that underscores the importance of this sermon and of this Lord's Day. Because it reminds us of the folly of seeking comfort in anything else other than Jesus Christ. It drives us back to Him. So that we might drink deeply from that refreshing well. And I use that language in light of the language here in Isaiah 12. Verse 3, Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Isaiah 3 is using water as an illustration for the blessings of our salvation. And that water is that which sustains and strengthens life. Water is refreshing to the weary soul. Unless it's a picture of the blessings of salvation. And you'll notice that the passage speaks of the water out of wells of salvation. It's put in the plural pointing to the, the fullness, the sufficiency of these wells, of this water. And as those who are in Jesus Christ, as those who've had God's anger turned away upon Jesus Christ so that He's no longer angry with us, we now have the blessed privilege of drinking from these wells. And all of this has application to where we find our comfort. Because the point is, go to this source. Go here for refreshment. To go elsewhere is to try to find water in a broken cistern. To go elsewhere is to try to drink water from a cup that has a hole in the bottom of it. It's only in Jesus Christ that we will find that which refreshes the heart and soul, that which sustains us in the midst of the trials that we face. It's only when we go to Him that we can make the confession that's found in verse 2. Verse 2, Isaiah says, by inspiration, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. I will trust and not be afraid. That's the expression, the confession of one who has found comfort in the fact that God is His salvation. If that were not true, if we did belong to ourselves, if we were our own and did not belong to Jesus Christ, well then we would have everything to be afraid of. But the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ, the fact that He is our salvation, means we too can say, I will trust. And I will not be afraid. It's this truth that enables us to say with the Apostle Paul, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, none of those things. Because I belong to Him. That is the substance, the content of our comfort. But now in order to enjoy this comfort, in order to experience this comfort, 
there are three things we need to know. And that's the teaching of question and answer two. Question and answer two, how many things are necessary for thee to know that thou enjoying this comfort mayest live and die happily? The answer three, the first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. The enjoyment of our comfort is found in knowing these three things. First, it's the knowledge of our sin and misery that is necessary for our comfort. Now this one might be somewhat surprising to us. How is that needed for comfort? Well, to state it negatively, it's not as though the knowledge of sin by itself provides us any consolation. It's not as though the knowledge of my misery is a part of the package of comfort. Because by themselves, the knowledge of sin and misery is alarming. By itself, the the knowledge that I of myself stand exposed to God's anger and His wrath. That's, That's terrifying. So it's not the knowledge itself that by itself that's the source of comfort. But this knowledge is necessary because it drives us to the One in whom our comfort is found, namely Jesus Christ. It reminds us of our need for that deliverance that's found in Him. As Christ Himself said in Mark 2, verse 17, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is, just as it is the knowledge of some physical infirmity, some disease or injury that awakens within us a sense of need for medicine or for some medical procedure, so too it's the knowledge of the disease of sin. The fact that I'm dead in sin by nature. That awakens within us. That desire for deliverance. That desire for the great physician, Jesus Christ. We need this knowledge because it reminds us of our need for deliverance. And that underscores, therefore, the importance of the law of our God. Because it's the law of our God that reminds us of this truth again and again. It's the law of God that leads us to confess the truth of Isaiah 12, verse 1. Thou wast angry with Me. Not just angry with the world. Not just angry with sinners in some general vague sense of the word, but angry with Me on account of My sins. It's a law that reminds us of that. That's going to be especially the message of tonight's sermon as we consider Lord's Day 2. It's the reason the catechism is going to begin the way it does. With a couple of Lord's Days focused entirely on our sin and misery. This is part of the reason we have the law read to us every Sabbath morning. Because if we want to live and die happily, if we want to enjoy this comfort, we need to know our sin and misery. That first is what is necessary. Second, 
the knowledge of our deliverance is also necessary for our comfort. This one is more obvious, more straightforward, but still worth explaining why we need such knowledge. We need such knowledge lest we despair on account of our sin and misery. Because if there was no hope of deliverance, that's indeed what would happen. We would be overwhelmed. We would despair. But it's the good news of the the Gospel that God uses to bring us up out of that. We need this knowledge also because this is how God by His Spirit stirs stirs up within us a desire for deliverance. That's true of repentance, for example. It's not really the knowledge of sin that leads the sinner to repent. It's the knowledge that there's mercy to be found in Jesus Christ. It's the apprehension of that knowledge that leads the sinner to repentance. That is, it's the Gospel, the hope of deliverance that that drives our repentance. And so we need to know the deliverance that's found in Jesus Christ. We need to know it so that we might receive it by faith. For as the Heidelberg Catechism will teach us in Lord's Day 7, a part of saving faith is a a certain knowledge of the truths that are found in God's Word and salvation in Jesus Christ. And if I'm ever going to know those things by faith, they have to be set before me that knowledge is necessary. It's also necessary lest we begin to look elsewhere for our deliverance. Lest we begin to invent conjure up some other deliverer in our hearts and minds. We need to be reminded that there's salvation only in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of that then underscores the importance of hearing the Gospel. Yes, the law is necessary as we just pointed out. But the law by itself has no power to save. Scripture clearly teaches us it's the Gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. And that's why it's so important to be here in God's house Sabbath day to Sabbath day. That's why it's so important to attend to the means of grace. If you want to live and die happily, According to the catechism, it means sitting under the preaching. It means partaking of the sacraments. And that means when the elders insist on being here in God's house, yes, we do so first and foremost for the glory of God because He demands, He calls us to worship Him. But it's also for your happiness. Because we need this knowledge of our deliverance. And that knowledge is set forth most clearly, most fully here. Sabbath day to Sabbath day. So what do we need to know in order to enjoy this comfort? In order to live and die happily? First, we must know our sin and misery. Second, we must know the deliverance that's found in Jesus Christ. And third, We need the knowledge of how to express our gratitude. Again, this one might surprise us. How is this a part of that which is necessary in order to have this comfort, in order to enjoy this comfort? 
And in fact, some might do more than wonder. Some might object to insisting on this point. And instead argue that, well, insofar as somebody has the first two, he, he knows his sins, he knows his deliverance, well, a life of thankfulness is just going to happen. He doesn't need any further instruction from there. But that type of thinking would be mistaken. We do, in fact, need to know how we are to express our gratitude. And on the one hand, we need to know that because we need to know how to express gratitude that's actually going to be pleasing, actually that, that's going to be acceptable to our God. In other words, it's not up to us to decide what's most pleasing to Him. It's not us, up to us to determine this is how to show thankfulness. But God Himself tells us how we are to live a life of thankful obedience. He explains it in His Word and we need to know that. And we also need to know it because of the joy that's found in a life of obedience. Just as sin brings misery, so too a life of obedience brings with it joy. It's a teaching of Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man, that is, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of the scornful. There's happiness in that. And thus we need to know how to express our gratitude. And that's the importance of the whole third section of the catechism. As it comes back to the law and instructs us in the law from the perspective of a life of thankful conduct. This is why we need instruction on Christian living and how to live a life that's pleasing to our God. Because as the Catechism teaches us, there are three things we must know to enjoy this comfort. And when we have that comfort, it will bear fruit in our lives. The fruit of our comfort is a life of joy and thankful praise. We say that in light of the end of question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism after explaining the substance, the content of our comfort, the catechism ends question answer one this way, and therefore by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. It speaks of the assurance of eternal life. And what greater joy does the child of God have other than that? To know that there's eternal life waiting for Him in heaven, but to experience that life already now, to have the, the beginning of it, the foretaste of it here in this life as we commune with our God, that brings joy. And then it adds, and it makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him that is the one who belongs to Jesus Christ, the one who takes comfort in that truth, is then led to now want to live a life of thankful obedience, to live unto Him, to worship Him, to Keep His commandments so that comfort, the truth of belonging to Jesus Christ and the comfort that comes with it, leads us and produces fruit in our lives. The fruit of joy and thankful praise. And that's likewise the teaching of Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12 is really a, a hymn, a confession 
of one who has been comforted with the truth of Christ's coming and the salvation that's found in Him. And notice verses 3-6 through now. We will not take the time to explain them, but just read through them. Verses 3-6. through Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord. Call upon His name. Declare His doings among the people. Make mention that His name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for He hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, Thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. That's the confession of one who has the comfort of knowing that God is His salvation. Is that your confession? Is your heart filled with such praise as is expressed here in Isaiah chapter 12? Insofar as that is not true, it is almost certainly due to a a deficiency in knowing those three things. In knowing my sin. The depths of my sin. Of knowing the heights to which I've been delivered. And knowing the joy that's found in a life of obedience. That again underscores the importance of going through the catechism again and again and again, 1 to 52, time after time. And if for some reason you still do not believe me, perhaps an illustration will help. Through the years, I've read a number of books about the experiences of prisoners of war living in concentration camps during World War II, especially on the Pacific front that has been under the Japanese. And if you wanted to try to summarize their experience in one word, it would be the word misery. There's the misery of not having enough food, of being starved so that even if you're given your daily rations every day, those rations are so pitiful that you will eventually starve to death. The men who lived reported losing massive percentages of their body weight. There's the misery of the general filth and dinginess of those places. Living in a concentration camp is no place for having good personal hygiene. Those places were riddled with diseases so that most men died from the diseases that would come upon them and sweep through the population. But the greatest part of their misery was being under the dominion of their enemies. Of having cruel taskmasters who would require of them back-breaking labor. Who would punish them with violence for the smallest infraction to the most unreasonable rules. Try to imagine that you lived through that. Try to imagine that for several years you were stuck as a prisoner in such a camp. And now imagine what it would be to be delivered from that. 
to see American troops, American forces taking over the camp and leading into captivity those who formerly held you captive. Imagine the joy of going home to be with your family. Would you not be so thankful for even the smallest, most insignificant things? Would you not be filled with joy for something so simple as a hard-boiled egg and a piece of toast for breakfast? Would you not be filled with joy just to be able to take a shower and to have a fresh change of clothes to put on afterwards? And would you not have joy in something as simple as the liberty to go for a walk without being afraid of your cruel oppressors? You see, it's the knowledge of our former misery. And it's the knowledge of the deliverance that makes us truly thankful. And it's that thankfulness, it's the comfort that comes from that that leads us to a life of joy and thankful praise. So that if this is not our confession this morning, if we cannot take upon our lips with sincerity the the words of Isaiah 12, then what we need is to take to heart the blessed and glorious truth. I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for the comfort wherewith Thou dost comfort us. For Thou art the God of all comfort. And we thank Thee for that blessed truth that we now belong to Jesus Christ. And we pray that Thou wilt use this sermon this morning to strengthen our faith so that we cling to this truth. Keep us from trying to find comfort somewhere else and other things that cannot provide true comfort. And instead, Fix our hearts and minds upon our Savior Jesus Christ, the one who is Jehovah salvation. Hear our prayer for his sake. Amen.